0: Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cawthorn. If you'd like to know more about Living Water or if you'd like to drop us a note or if you've got a question or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now let's join today's podcast in progress. This is a passage where there were two men headed from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They were sad, confused, bewildered. A man appeared beside them on the journey. They hadn't gotten the word that Jesus was alive yet, and they didn't recognize who was walking with them. They invited him to sup with them. He refused at first, but they insisted. He went in with them, and it wasn't until he blessed and broke the bread that their eyes were opened and they realized who they were in the presence of. They couldn't wait at that point. He disappeared. They didn't know where he went, but they booked it right back to Jerusalem again so that they could share with the other people what they had just experienced. And that's where we pick it up in this passage in Luke 24. But the whole group was startled and frightened. Why was that? Because Jesus suddenly appeared among them and he said, peace be with you. They had thought that they had seen a ghost. Why are you frightened? He asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies, as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. And still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. And then he asked them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. This is God's word. Ghosts don't have bodies. That's the first thing we get to learn right off the bat from this simple, direct, very accurate retelling of one of the resurrection appearances, thanks to Dr. Luke, who wrote it down for us. Ghosts don't have bodies. To whom was this passage written? It was written to a group of people we call human beings who live in southeastern lower Michigan, (laughs) In the year 2019. Because it was written so that we could grasp what was going on 2,000 years ago. Obviously, it was written prior to now. And there have been a lot of audiences that have had a chance to read that and be transformed by it. But Luke did so on purpose, probably because he could tell what human nature was like. And he knew how easy it was for people to either try to explain away or spiritualize or mythologize something away. And Luke wanted to make sure we did not do that. They might say, just like some of the early people who first heard about the story, oh, I like the Easter story. It's a wonderful, stirring, inspiring story. It's all about seeing a ray of hope and a ray of light after a dark season. It's all about new life springing up out of the ground, and they metaphorize it and try to make it into some great analogy, and they say, what's there not to like? The Easter story's great. Plus, there's always the Easter bunny and Easter baskets, and that's always fun. But that's not what Luke was all about. Interestingly, I found this uh, from a poll from five years ago. Eighty-nine percent of Americans said in this poll, yeah, we believe Jesus was a real person and that he walked the face of the earth. We believe that. Eighty-nine percent. That's quite a few more than I really expected, quite frankly, until I read that poll. And then it said 69 percent of those polls said, yes, we believe he rose from the dead. So what happened to the other folks in between the 89 and the sixty-nine? They metaphorize the Easter story and they say, oh, I don't think he actually rose, but he lives on spiritually. He lives on in our hearts. Or he lives on in the teachings which we have. And especially that Sermon on the Mount, that's a good one. You know, we we try to somehow explain away the fact that maybe he actually did really rise physically from the dead and appear to a lot of witnesses. Incidentally, I found a couple of other polls and those statistics have continued to maintain rather strongly. And one poll even recently it was three years after this one was done, which actually showed that it was more like 75% of the people in America said, yes, we believe he rose from the dead. So There's actually only 25% of Americans, according to that poll, that don't believe that he actually did that. So what about the original audience? What would they have been like? What might they have experienced? Well, Luke tells us about it. He uses some pretty extreme words, things like terrified and <laughs> bewildered and shocked, and they didn't know what to do. In fact, they were probably looking to run away if they could. And yet they stayed there, and eventually they were transformed once they understood the real truth about what was happening right before their eyes that they were experiencing with their own senses. And they were able to say, okay, now I'm filled with joy because I get it, Jesus actually does live. That was the original audience. But if you're only going to get the Easter story as a metaphor, you might be inspired for a few minutes, maybe for a weekend, but you're not getting the truth. And Luke wanted to make sure that we got the truth of the Easter story. So why was it so controversial? Why did so many people react so violently to this news that there was a guy, he lived a sinless life, he died the death of a criminal on a cross, he was buried, he was in the tomb for three days, and yet, miraculously, he rose again to walk the face of the earth. Why do people react so vehemently to that? Because if Jesus had a literal body, And it means he is Lord over all. And if he is, that means that people who recognize that feel that somehow they might need to respond to his authority and submit to that authority. And a lot of people just don't want to do that. Saul, who became Paul, had this very similar experience. And we get a great sermon illustration in the Bible. There's a lot of good illustrations in that book, I understand. And Paul was one of them. He was going to teach in Athens at Mars Hill. This was a place that used to be uh, a place where in Greek mythology, this guy who was the god of war was supposed to have been put on trial. Uh, There's a lot of really neat stories about mythology, but it's mythology. And Paul recognized that. Paul was going to separate mythology from truth at Mars Hill. And so he walks into this place in Athens And he sees that they have all kinds of little statues erected and altars to different gods. And there was even one that was the unknown God. So Paul decides he's going to start on the right track. So he compliments them. It's always a good way to start. Just like when I start many of our services by saying, oh, by the way, I still love you guys. I'm not just buttering you up. I actually do love you that way. And Paul was actually being honest and truthful with this group of people at Mars Hill in Athens when he said, You guys are very religious. And he meant that. They were. They were highly religious. They would meet at that place so they could debate religion and law and all kinds of deep philosophies. But he was saying, you're seeking for the unknown God. And I noticed that because of the statue. And that's a good thing. And by the way, I'm here to tell you about that unknown God. For a minute, he was doing great. That audience was enraptured because they loved to hear new ideas so they could kick them around and debate them and talk about them. And he was presenting something they had not heard yet. So there was probably some murmuring in the crowd. Some of them were whispering to each other going, ooh, this ought to be good. This guy sounds like he knows what he's talking about. I hope he brings us something new and exciting because people are all about the new and exciting. And so Paul then starts talking about that and says, well, let me tell you about him. And I'm going to read a couple of things that he said from Acts chapter 17. He says, this unknown God that you have an altar erected to, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples made by hand. Now, can you imagine that even at that point, there might have been some whispers because they were in these, the presence of a great temple they had a lot of wonderful things that were almost like some of the seven wonders of the world, the way they had been built. They were magnificent. And for him to say, this God that you have erected this altar to, now nah, he's too big to be able to reside in a little temple like this one over there. So I, I suspect that they're already starting to get a little uneasy. They're squirming in their seats a little bit. He says, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything. And he satisfies every need. And then he goes about talking about the character qualities of this unknown God. He says, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. And he's probably gesturing around to all these things that he's standing in the midst of. He's all around him. And by then, I'm sure that some of them are starting to get a little bit irked. I imagine that they may be exchanging glances, raising eyebrows, and whispering. And then he says something really bold. As if he hasn't gotten bold enough, he says this. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. And somebody would be saying, did he just call us ignorant? What did he mean by that? He says, God overlooked ignorance like that in earlier times. But now, he commands everyone everywhere. And they're thinking, okay, well, that, that would be us. He commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins. And they're going, wait, what are you talking about? Are you saying that we are sinners? And turn to him. And then, he, as if that wasn't bold enough, he keeps ramping it up until he's throwing down the gauntlet. Listen to what he says next. For he, meaning this unknown God, which I'm telling you about, he has set a day for judging the world with justice. That was the very place where they had put one of their gods on trial, allegedly. So he's standing in the right place to say this. This God who's over every other God, including all the gods of your pantheon, he's going to be standing in judgment of the whole world because of this one man that God has appointed. And he has proven to everyone who this one man is by... Raising him from the dead. You know what that did? It ended his speech. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't winning a popularity contest at that point. Some people scoffed. Some people laughed. Others said, this is really intriguing, and I would really like for us to talk, this small group over here, we'd like to talk with you later about this same subject. But it stopped the speech at that point. Kind of like the mixed reactions that we get even today 2,000 or so years later. When we start talking about this Jesus who was raised from the dead, that he's a real living person, that he was ascended to be with his Father in heaven, that he sits there at the right hand of the Father to intercede on behalf of all those who are part of his family, that really meets with all the same kind of reactions that Paul met with back in Athens. But Paul knew something that was important. He knew that love is not being expressed by simply being agreeable with everybody. Now that's tough for people pleasers I grew up in a family of people pleasers I struggle with this it's so easy for me not to want to rock the boat don't rock the boat baby rock the boat don't tip the boat over <laughs> I don't want to do that I want people to be happy and to get along I just, why can't we all just get along but sometimes when you throw down the gauntlet and somebody draws a line in the sand and says well what do you think about this sometimes we have to stand up and say well You know how much I care about you. I love you. And because I care about you, I want to tell the truth. I really strongly disagree with this that we just talked about because the Bible says, and then God has shown us this, because God knows us better than we know ourselves. And I can trust that he knows me enough that he's going to give me what I need and not just what I want. So that's what we can do sometimes by being like Paul. It's not just being agreeable. That's not necessarily love. Loving means that you love somebody enough to tell them the truth from God's word because only God knows what we need the most. So why is it such a big deal? Why was it a big deal in Athens? Well, for them, it meant that their search for the unknown God was over. That was a big deal. And they had to try to come to grips with it and think, what are we going to do with this news? How are we going to react Because it's a big thing, and he hasn't left us much choice. He hasn't given us a multiple choice with five different options to choose from. It's basically, you accept what I'm telling you now, and you accept the authority of the one who is risen from the dead, or you reject him, but one day he's going to judge the living and the dead, and we'll all stand before him in judgment. That's a pretty powerful sermon, don't you think? And so it was a big deal to them. Christianity. Through Paul, at that moment in history, was making a claim about its founder that no other religion has ever made. What you might say, yeah, but there were other resurrections, right? Because you're saying that the claim he was making is that their founder had resurrected from the dead, right? Yep, that's exactly right. But there were other resurrections, and there are other religions that talk about having people that have been raised from the dead, right? Yep, you're right. Of course, none of them can even compare with Jesus' resurrection, and I'll show you why in a second. But yeah, there were other resurrection stories, including a couple even in the Bible. There was one back in the Old Testament where Elisha the prophet had raised the widow's son, the Shunammite widow, who came to him and said, my son has died and I have no way of making a living now. What am I supposed to do? And Elisha actually raised this widow's son to life. Big difference, though, between Jesus' resurrection and the widow's son's resurrection. He rose only to have to die again. Jesus rose once and for all time because then he ascended to be with his father. Same thing with Lazarus in the New Testament in John chapter 11. You uh, may or may not be familiar with that story, so I'll give you the 30-second capsulized version. Mary and Martha, supporters of Jesus, lived in Bethany, had a brother named Lazarus. He got sick. People got word to Jesus because he was a little ways off and said, Lazarus is sick. He says, okay, we're going to stay here for a while. That upset some of them because they thought, but this is urgent. And he goes, I know what I'm doing. He finally gets there, but by the time he does, the word has reached him that Lazarus is in fact dead, and he's been in the tomb. Martha comes out to him on the road, beats on his chest, maybe physically, I don't know, but the tone of her voice sounds like she could have, and she was very upset, and yet we know what Jesus did for Lazarus. He speaks, and he speaks not so that God can hear him, because he is God, but he speaks so that those around him can hear who's going to get the glory for this big thing miracle that's about to happen and so he says Lazarus come out but Lazarus is wrapped in grave clothes so this is another thing different about Jesus so Lazarus has to have people actually unwrap him before he can celebrate otherwise he'd be doing this (laughs) not with Jesus Jesus just rises up out of the tomb and you look in the people who are there eyewitnesses get to the tomb the linen the shroud is right there the face cloth is folded nicely and neatly up on the place where his head would have been He doesn't need any of that. He just rises up out of that. Jesus' resurrection is different in every way possible from any other resurrection that you've ever read about. So, trick question. Why was the stone rolled away from Jesus' borrowed tomb? I heard another pastor preach this, and I loved it. And he said to his congregation, I bet you were thinking it's so Jesus could get out of the tomb, right? Come on, you thought that, right? And I thought, no, that'd be mean. I don't want to do that to you all. So I'm just quoting what he said. He says, it wasn't so he could get out. It was so his disciples could peek in. Because if he could pass through walls like he did at the people after the two guys from Emmaus got back to Jerusalem, and he just appears, the door had been locked, he doesn't need to worry about a tomb. He's, just, he's in a different realm. He's showing us that he has passed from this realm where everything is limited, so that he has completely kicked every curse of this fallen world right out the door. In this case, Literally. And he has power over all of that. So it was so that people could give an eyewitness account that he's not there anymore. Luke's report, people reacted like we would expect them to. Like a mortician's prank that I saw on YouTube as I was preparing for this message. (laughs) This is kind of cruel, but it was funny. There was a guy who was doing a tutorial for other morticians, and he was going to be showing on an actual corpse laid out in the morgue how to do an autopsy. And so he has this corpse there. He's very professional about it. He puts on his gloves. He's got his mask on. He pulls the mask down so he can talk right to the camera. You can tell he's been practicing. He's doing a good job with it. What he didn't know is that two of his assistants had rigged up a prank (laughs) for him. And when he gets just into the introduction to start talking about this autopsy, the corpse lying on the table, his arm goes. (laughs) This guy literally fell over trying to get away (laughs) And he screamed like a girl. No offense, girls. He knocked some equipment over trying to get out the door of that morgue. Why is that? Because dead people aren't supposed to do that. And the reason I share that hilarious but kind of morbid story is because that's how the people reacted. And that's why Luke said what he did in his gospel. People reacted that way. If somebody suddenly appears in the midst of a room and you know the doors are locked and you hadn't seen them there before and you've not been asleep, how are you gonna react? Just like that mortician. You're gonna be backpedaling as fast as you can and you're going, What? What is happening just now? I can't believe that you were but and now and, it's, ah. <laughs> and that's what Luke paints for us in this very realistic report. It's not mythology. He's not building us a metaphor here. He's telling us the truth. The Apostle John's reaction toward the end of his life, because we know he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, uh, God had some very special revelation for him. In fact, that's where we get the last book of the Bible, Revelations. The Apostle sees Jesus and he, he falls at Jesus' feet as if dead. You see that reaction? That's because this is real and it really happens because we don't expect ghosts or dead people to move the way he did. And he says hey ghosts don't have bodies. Touch me. Feel my, my hands. Feel my side. Look at my feet. It's me. I'm real. This is real. And then he says don't be afraid to John. I'm the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. I'm the living one. I died. But look I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Pretty powerful words. From the risen Lord. Jesus' resurrection became the death of death. We're going to be singing a song after this message that talks a little bit about that. When death was arrested, my life began. That's what Jesus did. He arrested death when He rose again. His life means that death had been conquered once and for all time, and everybody who trusts Him with their life eternally will have a resurrection as well. And so there won't have to be a death for us. Yes, physically, but not eternally. What does that mean to us? It means we have some choices to make just like the people in Athens needed to make a choice after they heard Paul. It means for us that the search for the unknown God is over. Maybe some of you have been seeking and you've been looking in all the different kinds of places. Every good piece of truth points to the real truth, which is embodied in Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't provide clues. Some people might say, oh, he's dropping little breadcrumbs for us. He's giving us clues so that we can find the way to life. And Jesus says, no. All those clues are pointing to me. I'm the one. I'm the resurrection. All the clues point to him. You can trust him eternally with your life. Just like what Martha said to Jesus when she ran out before he had resurrected her brother, Lazarus. She said, but master, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And he says, Martha, do you believe in a resurrection? she goes, yeah, but I don't, know. I don't want to have to wait until that resurrection time to see my brother again. I want my brother back. And he says, Martha, Martha, Martha. I am the resurrection. He was showing us that where Jesus is, there is resurrection. Where Jesus is, there is life. And then he proved it by raising her brother from the dead. So, an interesting question. Why broiled? Luke says, Jesus said to them, do you have something to eat? And they said, yes, here's some broiled fish. And he ate broiled fish as they stood there and gawked, wondering, how does he eat this broiled fish? Why not fried? Why not in a McDonald's fish sandwich? I've got a good theological answer for you. because That's the way the fish was prepared. And why is that a big deal? Because this is not myth or legend. If it were myth or heroism or legend, they would have embellished it and made it sound so much less mundane than broiled fish. He's just reporting. These are the words of an eyewitness reporter, not the word of a poet who's trying to embellish in a metaphor. It's good reporting. Another eyewitness, John, says this, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes," You see how he's involving all the senses? Which we have looked at and our hands have actually touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life. Which was with the Father and has now appeared to us. That same John who had written about the word that was in heaven at the time of creation. But that word became flesh and made his tabernacle or his dwelling among men. He's testifying to that out of eyewitness accounts because they really, literally, physically encountered the risen Lord. So your invitation is to do exactly what Paul extended to the folks in Athens. Will you embrace the truth of Easter and not just a metaphor? Because Jesus is so much more than a metaphor. He's a real, live, living person who's living now and will one day judge the living and the dead, will you embrace the truth of Easter and not just accept it as a nice story that talks about wonderful things that grow out of the ground in springtime. The truth of the resurrection says, in Christ, you will miss out on nothing. In our world, it's trying to tell us now, oh, you got to go for all the gusto you can get. And so people are doing that. They're running around trying to do everything they can to try to experience life, to soak it up. Because they're afraid they'll miss out on something. And Jesus, showing us in his resurrected body, is showing us, you're not going to miss out on anything. Whatever you think you might miss on earth, when you actually see him face to face and you get into heaven... You're not going to be missing anything. It's going to be so much better than anything you can even imagine. You won't be missing that, which you think is important down on earth. If you accept the truth of Easter, then Jesus will be real to you forever. Uh, There was a movie, I think it's Sleepless in Seattle, where Meg Ryan's character is watching a sad movie, and she's crying into her Kleenex. And uh, Rosie O'Donnell, her sidekick friend, is there with her. And she goes, you don't want to be in love. You want to be in love in a movie. And what she means is we've got this romanticized idea of what we need in order to make us fulfilled or make us happy or to have this romanticized kind of love. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we can even romanticize Easter. We can spiritualize that as well. And basically, Jesus is saying, no, you're going to get the real me. And you're going to get the real me who really knows you inside and out, and you'll have time to spend with me, and you'll see me face to face. Paul is saying, now we're looking as though it's a foggy mirror, and you've been in the bathroom in the shower too long, and the heat's been on, and you try to shave, and you can't really see yourself very well because it's really foggy. He says, that's kind of what it's like for us to try to get a grip on looking ahead at heaven. But eventually, when we finally get glorified, we're going to see him face to face, and he's going to be realer than real. And he says, now we see things imperfectly. But then we're going to see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then, I'll know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Which is why we're not going to miss anything on earth. We won't miss it. There's nothing that you will miss. I want to wind up with this true story that I just heard about recently, about a guy that I knew fairly well. He was a funeral director. He's not the one that was in the YouTube video. (laughs) His name was Nick. I had done quite a few funerals where he was uh, the one who was preparing the family to walk through a very difficult season. And he did so with such grace. And I really loved this guy. And I knew at the time I had met him that he was a believer in Christ. So what he brought to his job was a sense of calling. And I really appreciated that about him. But I found out later, now that he's in heaven because he had some lung cancer and uh, he's experiencing all that which we can only imagine now, I found out that he was raised, and this is not a smear on any other religion, but he was raised in a religious background that had a lot of symbolism attached with their worship practices. He was an altar boy. You can guess which religion I'm talking about. Um, He went to do a funeral one time where he was actually not officiating, but laying the body out and preparing the family. And a priest came by to prepare to be able to do the eulogy for that family. And the priest said, oh, I forgot my holy water. He said, so he grabbed a little container, and he just walked over to the sink in the back room and put some tap water in it. And he kind of ran his hands over it like that. And Nick looked at him, and Nick, who had been raised very strongly to believe that all this symbolism was extremely important, that tradition mattered, he said, that's it? That's all you're going to do? That's what turns water into holy water? And he said, it kind of pulled a rug out from underneath all that I had been raised to believe. Because I thought it was if you do the right stuff, if you go to the right church, if you say the right words, if you stand when you're supposed to stand and sit when you're supposed to sit, if you take the Eucharist every week, it's all about doing, doing, doing. And a pastor, another friend of mine named Tom, explained to Nick what this was all about. He said because of Christ at Easter, because of his resurrection, he's done the work for us. It's not about what we can do for him. He's done it for us. It's the God who came down to our level and poured himself out so that all we have to do is accept his grace. Then, instead of trying to earn his favor, we just love him back because we can't pay him back. And Nick got it. And he embraced the truth of Easter and became a genuine Jesus follower for the rest of his life because of that Easter story that was explained so simply by Pastor Tom. Will you accept the truth of Easter? I would like to challenge you to do so, and I'm going to lead you in a prayer. If you'd bow your heads, and if you've never prayed a prayer like this, I'm going to give you a sample prayer, and you can pray it just silently, and the God who is the same God who resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead will give you a resurrection as well. You can say a prayer that goes something like this. God, I recognize that I have been sort of turning Easter into a nice story, and I like the story, but I hadn't really grasped the fact that Everything changes when I understand that Jesus is claiming to do something and to be somebody that no other religion claims. I accept that truth. Based on eyewitness evidence, I trust to step out in faith and to say, be the Lord of my life. Because I want that future that the pastor has been talking about. I want eternity with Jesus in heaven forever where I will miss out on nothing. But that I will be joint heirs with Christ and will enjoy being known perfectly and accepted wholly. Thank you, Father, for dying for my sins, for offering your forgiveness to me. I accept that forgiveness, and I now turn my life over to you. Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If there's anybody here who had just prayed that prayer for the very first time, without making any commotion and without calling attention to anybody, would you just slip your hand up a little bit so I can see it, so I can pray for you? Thank you so much. Lord, I pray for all of us in this room that we will take Easter so seriously knowing that what you've done for us is a life changer. And I thank you for that life that all of us have in Jesus Christ and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.